To paraphrase Hunter S. Thompson, when you get locked into a serious beer collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. Cheers. Son of a bitch! Give me a drink! to the Tap Takeover podcast interview series. We are sitting down here at Proximity Malts in Walker's Point in Milwaukee, Wisconsin with Dave Kuski. Proximity Malts has been going strong since 2015, since they opened their doors. First place was here in Milwaukee, and now they're opening two plants, one in Colorado and one in Delaware. We're very fortunate to sit down here with Dave, who's got more than three decades of experience in the industry. And Jim, I know, can't wait to just (laughs) nerd out as hard as he can. But before we let Jim nerd out, uh, we've got a little bit of tasting, a wart taste, We've got some barley on the table. We've got all sorts of malts and everything else to get into for our listeners. And first, we want to get to know you, Dave. So how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. So what got you into the craft brewing industry to begin with? What was your introduction to craft beer? And what brought you to Proximity Malt? I was a home brewer before home brewing was cool. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Basically, even before it was legal. How's that? Uh, Yeah, we were were making homebrew hooch in the the basement in in, in college way back in uh, in the day. I got my background in biology and chemistry. I went to UW Parkside in Kenosha. Got my degree in biology and chemistry. Had no clue what how much science and what beer was all about. I was looking at being a lab rat basically for <laughs> research and went and got a job. And that was back in 1988 after the crash of the stock market in '87. And things uh, things weren't so cool about get, getting work at that time. Finally, hook up and, and got a job with a food company. I was a food microbiologist for all of I think two months. I was out in Jefferson, Wisconsin, and I was out looking for an apartment one day and talked to the guy that was showing me the apartment and lo and behold we, he was he was a chemist and we were geeking out that day <laughs> Jim <laughs> uh, and he started telling me about malt and about beer and I'm like well, I never never knew there was that much science behind it he says well I got a job opening in the lab are you interested in coming out I'm like beer yeah are you kidding yeah <laughs> I said do they, do they deliver beer yeah there's, yeah there's beer in the lunchroom don't worry about that and he wasn't kidding too so, so that's how I got into uh, to the malt business. So I worked for Laddish Malt at that time in Jefferson. I was there for seven years. I ran the lab and then Cargill bought them after three years. And I had the opportunity when Cargill came in, they asked me if I wanted to go out and learn the malting process. I said, sure. And see how it's done in the lab. Let's see how it's done out in the, in the plant. That's how I got into actually making and learning how to make the malt. So after a few years there, the, the craft beer revolution, if you wanted to call it, of the 90s, the breakout, the, the first breakout started and it was uh, 1995. And in the process, I had gotten to know some of the people at Bree Smalting through, through industry contacts. And they offered me a position. They purchased the Waterloo, Wisconsin plant, which used to be Miller Brewing Company's malting plant. Miller had shut the plant down, and Brees came in at 11th hour and purchased it. And I was living right in the area. I was in Watertown, which is right down the road. And so that's how I made my transition to Brees. I thought, boy, this craft beer industry looks really cool. And you know what? I like to brew, and I like, and I like odd beer. So the only thing I could find around locally was either my own home brewer 
imports. So, but at that point in time, uh, that's what opened me up to the craft beer industry. Now, where uh, where does the name Proximity Malt come from? Well, Proximity is really uh, the concept of what hatched this whole concept here of, of local, sustainable, committed that, that we talk about. Uh, local, especially, meaning uh, we, we've got roots here in, in, in Wisconsin. All of us are, are all the people that were involved in the in the startup of the business, and and myself, all are, are industry professionals from the Wisconsin area, from the Wisconsin malting industry. Not only that, we looked at it and said some of the things that have changed over the years with the consolidation of the industry is that it's gotten bigger and bigger and more concentrated in, in the Northwest. That what it's done is abandoned, in our opinion, a lot of areas that still can grow good malting barley. And there are, are plenty of craft brewers that are popping up in that area. So the concept is why not resurrect supply chains back in these abandoned areas? Great growing barley areas, in our opinion, they just got forgotten over the years. So that's kind of where the name proximity comes in. We look at it and say, we're not going to be the biggest maltster in the world. In, in total, we'll be making 25,000 metric tons of malt at each location, pales in comparison to the, to the Cargills and the ADMs of the world and the, and the big companies that are, are making malt right now. But what we can do is take take the supply chain and cut the cost. Not only from, we say sustainability, not just from an energy standpoint, which is important to us. We we want to, you know, we want to be good stewards of the environment, and, and we want to reduce our carbon footprint. So we're going to source all of our barley very locally, malt it locally, and then distribute it locally. Bring it right back out to the craft brewers that are in the area. We all we all benefit. You get the environmental benefit and the cost benefit of not having the transportation, the environment benefits, and and the, and the brewer benefits because now they can tell a story on the malt that they're using. Hey, this this was grown right in my state or right close to where my state is. It's been malted within a very close proximity to where my brewery is, it gives them a story. Yeah, it really gives them a great story to tell, yeah. all, along with the, the story of making their own beers using your malts. Exactly. So one of the questions that we typically ask our brewers is to tell their story of their brewery using uh, some of their beers. We can't exactly do that here because <laughs> you're a malter, but is there a way that you can kind of tell your story uh, using some of your malts? Do you have malts that are very exclusive to proximity that uh, other people aren't using? Is there a way that you can tell that story? I would say the uniqueness that we have. Um, malting is nothing new, if you want to call it that. It's, it's been around a long time. A lot of the malt styles have been around, and, and brewers are accustomed to using those types of malt styles. Doesn't mean we won't create things, but to begin with, our deck is going to consist of a, a, a standard lineup that, that brewers would be familiar with to get, to get used to our company. What's unique about us would be the locations that we are getting the barley in and the varieties of barley that we're using. There's a lot of interest right now in, in barley varieties and how that relates to flavor. You know, many people in the craft beer industry believe that a lot of that was lost with, with the consolidation in the beer industry and American lagers, that some of that was was lost, the flavor. And I, I know there's contrarians out there. I know one of them out there, if he was listening to it, would be, would be beating me on that. But uh, I tend to agree. And not only that, but uh, they're really getting interested in possibly terroir to say if, if this variety is grown in this region, how different, very much like grapes, how unique and how different is it? I think a lot of creative craft brewers that are out there and industry leaders, people that are respected in the craft beer industry and the brewing industry are seeking that. So I well, think that's something that we're, we're intending on capitalizing. I think it makes sense. If we have this much specificity in the hop varieties that people are using to make these crazy West Coast IPAs, why can't we have that same specificity in, like you said, in the, twi- in the terroir <coughs> and the varieties of the, the malts that are being used in the same beers? So with the really large uh, maltsters, do they pull then their barley 
for like uh, their base malts from multiple farmers and areas? They do, yeah. They, they usually spread out more geographically, if you want to call it that, from further further reaches. So how about you? You said that you really enjoy drinking beer. <laughs> What's your favorite beer right now? Cold and free. <laughs> I've been asked that question so many times, and I love so many brewers <laughs> that are out there. I don't discriminate. I, I hey. think there's a lot of great beers out there. I love all beer what, what styles. What about a, a favorite style? I, I love all beer styles. I, I, I mix it up a lot. I'm, I'm a seasonal guy. Okay. There's times I love, you know, I love a good IPA and I love a great Pilsner. Anywhere anywhere in between. As long as it's clean, I'm, I'm happy. You know, clean and malty and, and has a good balance. All right. Well, before we get into too many of our own questions, we've got some listener questions. Jesus, you want to open up the mailbag? Yeah, open up the mailbag. Uh, actually, I want to, one's coming from a previous podcast guest, uh, actually Dave Olson asked a question. Give him the lowdown of proximity malt and, and I told him that the main um, client right now are home brewers. And his question was, how do you compete with Northern Brewer, a one-stop shop for home brewers? He liked the idea of just getting everything in one spot. He's wondering specifically that, and then would you expand to a one-stop experience? You know, we've, we've kicked that around, and, and what we're looking for here, I don't, we don't want to compete with Northern Brewer. You know, it's really not, we, we're a malting company, we're not a distribution company. What we're looking for are the sophisticated, all whole grain craft brewer that's in there that's interested in, in really fresh, freshly produced malt, locally produced malt. Everything that we're making that we're selling out of the storefront here probably made within the last two to three weeks. We thought, we're thinking down the road or kicking it around of at least adding hops and yeast to give it a basic package to say if somebody wants to come in and has that capability. But of course, I think our core focus is going to be on uh, on whole grain malt. He had another question and he confessed that he might be out of the game for a while, but he said he hadn't heard of you. So what kind of efforts are you are you making to get into the home brewer market? Are you advertising or like... Local homebrew clubs? Yeah, local homebrew clubs. Or Absolutely, local homebrew clubs. We've sent out... We're doing a lot of social media, of course. Christy, I think you met her earlier here, is doing a fabulous job. She's our, our retail manager. She loves social media, so we're doing blogging. We're doing Twitter. We're doing Facebook. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dinosaur when it comes to that, guys. It's as far as I go. So okay. if, I, if I had my kids here, they could tell me. But that's really how we're trying to reach. And I think that's the, the media that most homebrewers and even... And, uh, craft brewers themselves are using how many how many ads do you see on tv for craft beer and how many barrels are we selling so, <laughs> no i, I get no, it yeah yeah, yeah true, truly i look at it and i go that's our we're looking at it from a grassroots standpoint to go i think if, you know homebrew clubs especially i'm working with the beer barons here and and we've reached out to a number of them and, and i believe we'll, we'll make an impact there it's and, one of those things once you're in you get the word of mouth that everybody hears it and so yeah, yeah we're doing no, we're doing brewing it, trials yeah. with some local craft brewers yeah. here with all malt beers and giving them a chance to try our stuff out Okay, I got another question for you. Actually, this one comes from uh, Rob in Wamatosa. When did some research, looked at the website, he just thought the expansion was very impressive. But he said, with the expansion and growth, will there be an expansion? This is down the road into <laughs> Europe, or at least distribution, because malts are very different in Europe. And he specifically was wondering because of the popularity of U.S. beers, U.S. malts, and he referenced Stone Brewery's presence there now. Is that something that you are looking towards? Like, I know you're growing right now, but is Europe or like going overseas? Or are you just trying to concentrate in the U.S.? Well, for right now, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to get the plants open and concentrate in the U.S., but I absolutely agree with them. I think there's a, there's a huge demand over there for, for American-style beer. In my past years here, I've seen that interest grow from Europeans to say it's funny because European mall was so much coveted when I first came in the industry, <laughs> and now we're making a, a full 180 here, and now the Europeans are interested. 
interested in, in you know, even countries like Australia, you know, the craft beer business is booming there. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, opportunity abounds. And, and with our Delaware location, by God, we happen to be close to a port. We're only 50 miles off the coast. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's some opportunity down the road for us to, uh, to reach out. I want to talk about the expansion, the two locations. What are mm-hmm. the strategic reasons that they're there? I guess you spoke on the port, just not setting barriers for yourself. But I guess, can you talk about the two new plants? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the reason they were picked, obviously, was barley. We looked at it and said, what areas can grow barley successfully and grow malting barley and are just underutilized right now? So we looked at the San Luis Valley, which is in Colorado. That location it was used to be a fairly large Miller Coors producing area. For whatever reason, Coors kind of gravitated away from that San Luis Valley. It's at about 7,500 foot elevation. So logistics in and out of there, you have to go over the pass. Uh, I probably get why ultimately they've moved in other directions, but absolutely beautiful, beautiful barley growing area. Plenty of capacity, plenty of availability, and is good for the good for the local economy and good for the growers. Anything that, that's value-added ag in that area is, is fabulous for them. All, all very experienced growers, experienced malting barley growers. So that was a that was a natural fit for us to, to walk in there and, and be able to to hit the ground running with our raw material supply. Delaware, on the other hand, is is unique. Uh, the, what we call the Delmarva Peninsula, which is Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. We're kind of right in that corner, if you want to call it. We're very far southern Delaware, right on the border of, of Maryland. It's still a barley growing region, but what they do is they, they grow it for cover crop. It's a winter crop that they grow, and they, they grow that for, for soil conditioning and soil preservation. Basically, they'll feed it off. There's a lot of chicken producing farms out there. Literally, there's over, uh, over 7 million bushels of barley that is grown in that Delmarva area, but it's all going into feed right now. And it's a shame. It's all winter barley. That's incredible. So we looked at that and went, wow, there's a no-brainer for you. <laughs> Why not bring in, and in the climate itself, too, if you look at it, it's, it's 50 miles off the coast. It's, it's a very, very maritime climate. It couldn't get any closer, in my opinion, to some of the great barley-growing regions in Europe. So what we're doing right now is we're bringing in varieties from Germany, from the UK, uh, established winter varieties. We will be the only producer right now of, of winter malt in the U.S. Can't grow it in the northern regions yet. They haven't gotten the winter hardiness thing worked out. <laughs> Can't grow it in Wisconsin or, or Idaho or successfully. They're working on it and they're trying to crack the nut, but we can hit the ground running with it. So perfect area for us. And a lot of crap, you know, huge blow up of craft breweries out in the area as well. Oh, especially in Colorado. Are you talking well, more craft breweries per capita than any other state in the union right now? No doubt. So why, uh, why Milwaukee first? Is it because of the local ties be- between uh, the owners? It's home. Gotcha. Milwaukee's home. I-, I was raised in Racine. Dale and Dale and Amy were all raised here in Milwaukee. So why not? We're in between so we can fly in either direction. Makes it easier. <laughs> we like Milwaukee. I like yeah. Milwaukee. So is there still any barley grown in Wisconsin like during over the summers? There it is. Very little. It's spring barley that's grown here, uh, mostly for feed. That, w- that would be there. I, I used to run a little bit of a barley program locally, but it's really ch- uh, malting barley. But it's really challenging to get the malting barley quality right now. The breeding is getting better, and they are working to to make it more adaptable for other areas as well. But disease pressure is really hard, especially with a lot of corn growth. Mm-hmm. If there's corn in the area, that's a it's a disease vector for for barley. Fusarium mold is carried by corn, and then that will jump over into the barley crop and make it unusable as malting barley. So I felt bad dashing a lot of prospective growers' hearts when they worked on their 
crap all year long, brought them to Whistler, said, sorry, it doesn't work. <laughs> it just didn't make malting quality. Well, still, uh, still kind of getting to know you, Dave. In this interview series, we'd like to focus on cellaring collections. And so we wanted to know, do you have a cellar collection? What uh, what sort of stuff do you have down cellar? in the basement? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, I do have a cellar. Okay. <laughs> yeah, more, more than, it, it's, it's, it's traveled all the way from Wisconsin out to Vancouver, Washington, and back to Wisconsin <laughs> as well. Let's see. What are my two favorites I've got? I've got 2002 Old Stock Ale okay. from North Coast. So that is what now? It's 15, 15 years old. And I've got say two six packs of 2004 Bigfoot. Wow, okay. Oh, Sierra Nevada, right? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a big sale on it. Timer's Liquor and Racine way back. <laughs> and I cleaned them out. Yeah, it was it was a fire sale when I told the when I told the distributor for for Sierra Nevada who I happen to know what I paid for him. Uh, I think he went over there and yelled at him. <laughs> so I went back I think for four trunk trunk loads full of uh, cases. Wow. <laughs> sounds that like served me well. Sounds like he could give Russ Klish from our first episode a run for his money. He's got a few down in his basement from '92, but uh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, there's yeah there's guys years. out there that are crazier than I am. <laughs> anything, anything high alcohol, you know, imperial stouts. I've got a, I've got a pretty good collection. That's, that's been one big focus of our, uh, our podcast. The, uh, the, especially the bourbon barrel aged imperial stouts. They really take on some interesting characters after a few years. My question is, as a storefront, you have all this set up. What's the process? A home brewer comes in, kind of looks down the line. Sometimes they don't necessarily know what they want. Do they work with you? Do they work with Christy? Kind of. They'll start with Christy if they're sophisticated home brewers. They usually have a pretty good idea coming in what they want. But I just can't help myself when I hear somebody down here. I come walking down because I love talking to home brewers. <laughs> <laughs> Being a home brewer myself, and usually by the time we're done, they've, they've gone through the uh, through the process here. I take them through on a little walkthrough, and I think as a startup, a lot of our concept here is just get, to get connected with the local community here. You know, we all love Milwaukee, we love the area, and let's face it, our you know our, our focus is going to be the big plants that are out there. But we we really want to be connected with the local home brewing community, and ultimately with the with the craft brewing community here, and craft brewing scene here in Milwaukee. Okay. We're excited about it. So you'll help out anybody. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Excellent. As I said, never give a malster. Mike, these guys will give you, by the time they're done, it'll be a half hour before and they've, they've, they've bought their malt and got a tour of the malt plant. All right, well, I think that's a perfect time to take a little break. Uh, Dave's going to lead us on a little tour, same sort of tour that, that a home brewer would get if he came in the store. So let's have our listeners listen to that. And uh, after we come back, we'll do a little bit of beer news and then back to nerd out with Jim and Dave. What we do down here in the lab side of things is each one of the malts has attributes that the, the brewer is going to want to understand before he puts it in his brew. In fact, even ahead of that, they have specifications that come out and say, okay, for this particular malt, we need these characteristics. We want this color, we want this moisture content, we want this flavor, we want this sizing. So we, down here in the lab, we're putting everything to the test there, all the way from the barley when it comes in, because we know that the raw material is going to, you know, if we get that barley in the right condition, that the uh, final malt is going to be in the correct specifications. So we'll start with even with sizing. Behind you is a, uh, it's called a sort of mat. This little unit will shake back and forth, and there's varying size screens on it. Settle on top of that, the smaller kernels will fall through. There's three layers of screens on there. We'll pull that out, put 100 grams on there, way up in front of the screens, and that gives us a little division of what size the kernels are actually going to be, both barley and malt. Important on the malt side because that's how a brewer is going to set his mill. So if he has too thin of kernels, 
it's going to go through and not get crushed properly. If the kernels are too big, it's going to turn that into flour. Okay, so it's cutting so, down the unpredictability factor on the actual brewing side. Absolutely. Gotcha. They're looking for consistency. Mm -hmm. they, want, they don't want to be in there tweaking with their mills all the time. They mm -hmm. want to be able you know, every brew they run through there, they want to have that consistency. That'll carry all the way through the mashing process and all the way through their yield. Okay. If they, if they over mill it, get it too fine, uh, you better get a Snickers. It's going to be a long day. So things, <laughs> things will plug up in the louder ton. It's not good. <laughs> if they go the opposite direction and they don't crush it, they lose a lot of yield. So that brings us to the liquid side of things, saying what does a brewer do? They take this malt, put these malts together in their grist mill, and then they would grind that up and put that through a mashing process. So we have a mini masher right over here. We can do, we can do up to 16 mashes at any one point in time, like 16 mini brews, okay. if we want to call it that. So that's about a three to three and a half hour process, <clears throat> just like it would be in a, in a normal brewery. So we're grinding up about 50 grams of malt, mixing that in with water, bringing it through the standard brewing cycle that a brewer would do to create his mash. All right. So then you uh, control the mash temperature with a water bath or something? Yep, automatically, yep. Uh, there'll be water down inside here, and that's all temperature controlled on a, on a PLC here, and that'll run that through the, the ramps. Basically like a little decoction mash. It'll do 45 degrees C hold for the protein rest, then it'll ramp up one degree C per minute until it hits 70 degrees centigrade, which is 158 or converted temperature mm -hmm. and then hold for one hour at conversion temperature once that's finished cool it off rapidly we'll take that and we'll use a funnel and filter paper that becomes our louder ton mm -hmm. and we'll put a, we'll put, yeah it's our mini louder ton so we'll louder at that point and then we'll collect the wort underneath and from there we'll do our the rest of our, our testing on it as I said one of the key tests that are there is uh, extract that's that's the bread and butter for a brewer out there the higher that extract the more that sugar and, and uh, yeah, the carbohydrate the more the Exactly, that's your efficiency, right? So how, how much beer per pound of malt am I gonna be able to make? And that's that's important to them. Mm -hmm. So we have a pretty fancy looking, uh, it's about the cost of a Ferrari right here. That's a, called a digital densitometer. So you've seen brewers probably use a little hydrometer where they mm -hmm. swirl that in there. This will take it to the 100,000th place in specific gravity. Wow. <laughs> Extremely sensitive equipment in there. So we'll take that wort, collect that wort, drop a little portion of it in here, and then that will read out the specific gravity. And then we'll equate that through some calculations. We can equate it to, to Play-Doh and then to percent extract. Percent right. extract is what we report to the uh, to the brewer. So right. where is it measuring? It's jumping up between that point. Inside, there's actually a little YouTube. You see that? right there that's mm -hmm. so it fills that youtube and a youtube oscillates and vibrates and the and the heavier it is the, the wider that period of oscillation is so it's measuring how that how far deflecting that youtube is so the more dense that material is and the higher the extract the more that will oscillate yeah, and uh, specific gravity really measures the amount of alcohol that's in there which would relate to the it, it would if it was alcohol in this case it's, oh, measuring it's fermentable sugar. sugars yep. right in this case it's measuring sugar and any uh soluble protein, anything that's not water, basically, mm -hmm. that's going to come in along with that what we've measured here. And that's where that percent extract uh, comes in. As I say, they're not cheap, but they're great pieces of equipment. Uh, and brewers, you know, real, you know, the more, I shouldn't say the more sophisticated, the more barrels you're brewing, they're really, really watching that close. I mean, that starts to become make it or break it for them mm -hmm. in terms of extract. So it's a critical, uh, critical 
number. Yeah, how many so you get? this position is important for the home brewer. I mean, would they get to that? I guess no. when you're doing no, uh, it may not be, but uh, why not benefit from it? We've got the equipment oh, yeah. here, so I look at it and say anything that the home brewer is going to buy out of the out of the storefront here is going to get the exact same analytical that uh, okay, yeah, that's going to be running all all the way up to the largest brewer that we would, uh, would service on the commercial side. Yeah, but for a larger scale craft brewer, that's this where is, their margins lie. You know, is how much how much per yield can they get out of all of their their barley and their malt. Yeah, so exactly. Now it makes way more sense to do this for a home brewer who's just messing. And for around. me as a maltster, it helps a lot too mm-hmm. because that gives me the precision to say, okay, am I doing my process properly? Mm-hmm. And if I get that kind of precision on a on a routine basis out of the production side, I can look at it and go, okay, how do I need to maneuver the process to to get the maximum value out of the barley that we're bringing in? All the way around, I think everybody benefits. The maltster benefits, the home brewer benefits, and the and the commercial benefit as well. So we talked a little bit about Lava Bond, and that's the big wide, that's the color, it's the fancy uh, way, way of measuring color, it's really not all that fancy, it's just a, it just, just describes how it's how it's measured through a spectrophotometer, but we'll take that, uh, that liquid, and then we'll run it through this piece of equipment over here, it's called a UV Visible Spectrophotometer, again, pretty, pretty spendy, pretty uh, uh, technical piece of equipment, uh, the optics on those are really what is the cost on it. You can buy a spectrophotometer for $200 and you're not going to get a whole lot. Uh, this one's substantially north of that in, in multiples, <laughs> but it does give us very accurate color representation. So we'll take that wort, suck it up through a little tube here. There's a little sampler on there. That goes into a, a measuring cell. Beam of light is shot through that and anything that is not absorbed by the liquid passes through and is picked up by a detector. So the darker and darker that that wort or beer, they do this for beer as well, the darker and darker that gets, the more absorbance there is, the less transmitted light there is. So they equate that, that's how they equate that to, uh, to level bond. Mm-hmm. It's basically through a half inch cell is, is really the, the kicker on that. It's a half inch beam of light at 430 nanometers wavelength. So if you want, if you want the geeky side, that's uh, the that's geeky, super geeky. <laughs> that's super geeky side of it, but that's how... Uh, that's how level mind is determined. Is this all stuff like? Is it state of the art? Like you can't get any more precise than this. Right? You can, yeah. Okay. If you, you know, if you get if you got a big checkbook, you can get uh, more okay. precise. If you went to you know extreme laboratories that are out there probably doing uh, you know, human testing, but that's that's it's right up there. I mean, you're not going to get a whole lot better than what the optics are on. Uh, well, well, good enough for making uh, making malt and beer. I can, yeah. I can tell you that. I feel very comfortable with the numbers coming out of it. Okay. Uh, this unit here, this will also do um, uh, side of the protein as well. If we shoot through two different wavelengths and subtract the two values from the two wavelengths, that can actually equate to the amount of soluble protein that is in the wort. And that's very important for, uh, for yeast management, for any brewer yeah. that's out there. Yeast is like us. It has a, has a nitrogen demand we have we have amino acids we need essential amino acids out of the yeast so we'll measure soluble protein in there that tells us how good a how good a job did we do in the malting process breaking down any of those proteins and making them soluble for use in beer and it does give it some body and and some character it's kind of what gives a little mouthfeel separates water from beer basically when you when you drink because there there's some grains that you want a lot of mouthfeel proteins from and then other silos you want almost none Exactly, and that goes back to the modification level of that malt. The less, the lesser modified that that malt is broken down in the malting process, the more of those bigger components you're going to have left in there, and that's going to provide body and mouthfeel along with it. That's where a dextrin malt comes in, for instance. Yep. You would put it through a unique process to make it so that the yeast can't break it down. 
<laughs> and you build these big molecules up inside that are going to hang in there and really give you some some good body. So when I when, when I when I roll my my dextrin malt out, I think I'm going to call it bodybuilder. <laughs> so yeah. that's the name I'm going to hang on it. <laughs> so I've, I've seen other other ones up at dextra pills and yeah. carapil. I'm I'm calling it bodybuilder. I like oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> so are you planning on giving your uh, malts unique names, differentiated? To, I eventually would like to. Right now, I think we're putting them out there just to get people educated sure. and say this is what we can do. If I gave them goofy names, I think they'd have a little hard time uh, breaking it down. But ultimately, I can throw a little have a little fun along with it, just like a craft brewer would. To, to, we'll, have, we'll we'll have some naming contests over a few beers. I think you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's always the best way. Gets a creative yeah. creative juices going when you're a lot of a, ideas come up. Having a couple of good brews, absolutely. <laughs> this unit here, uh, that's called the near infrared reflectance unit. So if we want to measure the protein content, the total protein on dry grain and also the moisture, we can just take a scoopful, drop it right in the chute, it'll hit it with near infrared light and it'll measure how much reflects off there and that'll correlate back to how much protein and how much moisture is in that grain. So real quick rapid tests. Oh, so you put nice. it in that form? Yeah, take oh, the whole okay. kernel, drop that whole kernel, either barley or malt right in there and there's a little calibration right inside of it and it'll read that calibration tell us how much protein and moisture content there is. Okay. So every batch goes through everything in one, can it go in one day or? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. This is this is my four lab techs rolled into one. This is a <laughs> this is actually five lab techs rolled into one right now. As, as, as my QA R and D person calls it, there's five graduate students hiding inside of this uh, this cabinet. In here. <laughs> so this unit can do diastatic power and alpha amylase, which are the enzymes that break down the starches into sugars during the brewing process, during the mashing. You can also do free amino nitrogen content. So not only do we get soluble protein, but then we get how much free amino nitrogen is in there. That's where the yeast health really comes in. And brewers will have, want a minimum FAN, they call it, to, to make sure that their yeast are staying healthy. So this will do FAN. It'll also do beta-glucan, which is a constituent of the cell walls of grain. And when you're malting it, that's the first thing you want to do is break those cell walls down because that's all wrapped up, all the good starch and all the good usable protein is wrapped up inside these tightly bound cell walls. So when you get barley or a seed germinating, one of the first things it does is go, it puts out an enzyme, a beta-glucanase, or a series of beta-glucanases that pepper holes in those cell membranes. That opens them up, then the amylases rush in, the proteases come in, and suddenly you have malt. So this will also do beta-glucan as well. So lower number tends to reflect more breakdown or more modification. How do you actually open this thing? <laughs> well, you're asking the wrong guy. There's a little <laughs> uh, But it takes one graduate student to open uh, it. <laughs> takes a PhD to learn how to open the damn thing. <laughs> wow. So this is all done in microliter quantities. Well, actually, you know, super, super small quantities. And it will run five of those assays at one time. We also, we're also working on possibly doing color on this thing, too. I think by the time it's all said and done, we're going to have a six or seven graduate students rolled up inside, <laughs> inside of this unit. We're building two plants, one out in Colorado sure, yeah. and one out in yeah. Delaware, so I'm looking at this to say, to minimize this whole conglomerate of equipment, as many assays as we can put on this will mm -hmm. minimize the lab space that we're going to need in each one of the plants. So nice benefit to this. Uh, it's a Thermal Fisher Gallery is what it's called. And what this is, a computer. And that's, and that, 
<laughs> and that and that tells and that tells what the grad it tells the graduate students what to do. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, the gra- like, that's the boss. Yeah, it's always like the professor. That's the, that's the lab professor. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah. I like the that. manager's always the one that doesn't. Look all that face. I like that. Yeah. It's, we'll give it a name, professor something. Yeah, you know, we'll have to drink yeah, a few beers. Some, uh, this is some expensive equipment. Yes. Yeah, here. it is. I mean, well, we we didn't spare the expense, but we needed it, and you know, we're a new company starting out, and we need to prove that we're capable of doing doing what we say we can do. Now, is all testing done from here, from for the other locations? Or Actually, no. Each each of the locations will have a lab. We're still we're still in the build process. Right. So in in right. okay. Colorado and Delaware, we figure Colorado will be functional, and, and we'll be doing uh, commissioning about the second week of May. Is what we're targeting there. I I'll find out tomorrow or Monday what the target date, the final target date is now okay. for Delaware. But I'm assuming it's probably going to be in June or maybe first part of July. Okay. Well, that's still coming up soon. Yeah, very quick. So I'm already uh, booking airline tickets and getting ready to, to move up, move to Colorado for a couple of weeks. And then as soon as I'm done there, I'll probably come home for a week and off to Delaware. And what are the uh, capacities of each of the plants? 25,000 metric tons at each plant. In pounds, it's 55 million pounds. So a pretty good size. Of, nothing compared to the large full-scale monsters. Uh, I think there's one across town here that at one time the plant was rated at about 200 and 250,000 metric tons. So we're going to be 25. So. All right, well, let's take a quick break here. Uh, we're going to get to some beer news, and then we'll come back, and we'll let Jim and Dave just c- completely geek out on malls. <laughs> now for this episode's edition of Beer News. Stone Brewing released a collaboration beer with Maine Beer Company named Dayslayer. This IPA was fermented with Pilsner strains to give it an intense bready character before turning sharply bitter and ending in a clean dry finish. Look for it to hit the Midwest in a couple of weeks. Dogfish Head 120 minute IPA returns this month. Keep your eyes peeled for this behemoth that clocks in at 15 to 20% ABV and 120 IBUs. On shelves now you can find the 2017 version of Pentagram from Surly. This Brett Dark Sour Ale was aged in red wine barrels for 18 long sour months. Now it's up to you to go to the store and buy it. Central Waters announced this week a very limited release of their maple bourbon stout. They gave B&E Trees freshly dumped bourbon barrels that they aged their maple syrup in for a full year. They then took those barrels back and added their brew and aged it for another year. Tickets for this release sold out in under a minute. If you didn't get in on the craziness of brown paper tickets, don't fret. There will be numerous tappings around the state on a special date for an undisclosed special reason. Stay tuned for details in future episodes. In brewery news, Urban Harvest recently celebrated its one-year anniversary. Congrats and cheers to them on this accomplishment. Eagle Park Brewing will be having a Loop Station Cinco de Mayo party on Cinco de Mayo. Stop by and enjoy some mariachi music and some Loop Station. In festival news, make sure you stop by Stein and Dine this Saturday. Stop by the physics booth and visit with the Tap Takeover podcast crew. We'll have special pours at the following times for our fans who mention their favorite episode and which part they like best. At 2.30, we'll have a sampling of 19 by Central Waters. At 3.15, we'll have Petrichor by Mobcraft. And at 4 o'clock, we'll have Big Hugs from Half Acre. We'll also be pouring some select beers from Eagle Park Brewing Company. Tune in this Friday for a special edition of Beer News. We'll be listing off events for Milwaukee Craft Beer Week as we'll be working with MilwaukeeCraftBeerWeek.com. This has been this episode's edition of Beer News. Extra, extra. That's right. 
All right, thanks for another good edition of Beer News, Andy. That was a fun tour. We'll have some pictures that accompany that. But that was uh, that was awesome. Thanks, Dave. Right now, we're going to let the dog off the leash. Jim, I think this is your show. You are free to geek out. Do it. All right, awesome, Dave. I'm really excited to talk to you today. So I uh, really want to walk through the whole process from your planning stages of sourcing your grains and working with the farmers and all the way through how malt is actually made and the different types of malts and how they're made. So let's start with the planning. Like, uh, like over the last few years, it's been a lot of talk about hop contracts and how difficult it's been to get a lot of the hops that brewers want. Uh, have you seen that transition at all to the malt industry at all? Yeah, very much so. When I, you know, 15 years ago, barley was grown in, uh, as, as an open crop. I mean, you, there was residual supply grown out there. You didn't have to have a contract. I could make 100 phone calls to, to merchants and buy just about any kind of barley I wanted to. Uh, slowly, progressively, as barley began to shrink, a number, number of reasons why that happened, and that'd be a whole, whole separate podcast. <laughs> but, uh, as barley started to shrink and, and to move into other areas, uh, other competing crops came in, so it became more of what's called a custom crop. We're at a point now where if you want malting barley, you need to contract with a grower. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no residual supply. No, no barley, no grower puts malt barley in the ground with the idea that he's going to go out and market it to, to a maltster. Okay. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, because some farmers will grow other crops in between growing malt and growing barley, right? Well, they will. As part of a crop rotation, yeah, that's pretty common for them to go through a crop rotation. They will not grow malting barley without a contract anymore. Just just knowing that the market's not there. Maltsters all are nearly 100% contracted with growers. So how you go about doing it, I mean, you, you do your production planning for the year, you look at, at what your estimated sales volumes are gonna be, what your estimated production capacity is at each one of your locations and as a whole, and you go out there and you, you determine how many acres are gonna be needed to uh, to contract. Again, it's an estimate, it's it's an up and down estimate. You wanna carry in a residual supply of old crop, because if you think about it, it's a, it's a one crop deal. Each year it's grown, since it's all custom contracted, you wanna keep a little residual supply from the year before in case this crop year doesn't perform as well and the selection rate is now lower. Yeah, I've so heard you're that. always playing that, that balancing act of how much is enough and how much is not too much. Yeah, I've heard that bad harvest can happen. What can cause a bad harvest and how do you detect uh, what, what is going to be a good harvest versus not? Is it just uh, beyond just yield? And uh, like, what do you do if you've got Dr- a low drought, yield? Drought and, and rain at, at the wrong times are really the biggest evil there is for uh, for malting barley. So drought's obviously going to kill, kill you on yield. You're not going to get the acres that are going to be needed, especially on dry land. I mean, a lot of malting barley is now grown on irrigated acreage, which does make that a little bit easier, but rain at harvest is really a killer, because that what that'll do is it causes the grain to sprout while it's out in the field, and that is very negative, and it can also be a, a, a developer of mold, and, and we talked about fusarium mold a little bit, and what corn can do to it as a vector, that's that's the biggest one of the biggest evils is to have rain at harvest or heavy dew heavy moisture at harvest and what right. that'll do is that it creates problems with the germination later mm-hmm. which is critical to to good malting barley good malting barley has to germinate rapidly and uniformly and when it's pre-sprouted that doesn't happen so let's get into the how malt is made so you've got great harvest you've brought your grain in walk us through the whole process of how you take this raw grain and make it into this uh, miracle product at the end well malting is i've always called it uh, being an or hydroponic farmer <laughs> taking <laughs> millions and millions of seeds in a concentrated area and having to make them all sprout germinate and, and grow at the same time 
So we start that out with the steeping process. When, when, when barley is harvested, one always looks at how long does it take. There's a little bit of what's called dormancy, built in natural dormancy to a seed. So there's a period of time after harvest that you need to let that barley condition and sweat, as we call it, before it will break dormancy. And each crop year can be a little bit different and each variety can be a little bit unique and different. But once it has gotten to that stage, first you can break malting down really into three steps. That's steeping, germinating, and then drying. So the steeping portion of it is it's it's springtime, Mr. Barley Kernel. It's time to grow. <laughs> You're in the ground. It's raining. What do we do? We put it into a large tank. So we immerse it in water, hold that for a period of time. Barley comes at about 13% moisture content on average. In that underwater stage, we bring that up to about 25 to 30% moisture. Typically about 8 to 12 hours it will take. You can hear that bubbling going on in the background. That's a steep that's in process right oh, now. Okay, so not cool. only do we have it underwater, but we bubble air up through it. A, that washes it, mixes it, cleans it up, and provides dissolved oxygen back into the water. So once you've got it uh, steeped and it's uh, starting to germinate, what's your next step there? Well, we're, we weren't done oh. quite with steeping yet. Oh, no. <laughs> that, that, was, that was the first part. We got it up to 25 to 30%. We could say, okay, we're, we'll, we'll quit. But what's really important is that we have to get that kernel fully hydrated. All that starch material on the inside needs to get fully hydrated. So we'll go through two or three of those immersion phases with a little what we call an air rest in between. It's still an aerobic process. So we drain all that water out. We don't want to drown it. And we turn fans on. And we pull oxygen and air through that grain. From that point in time, we'll, we'll re-immerse it, bring that moisture content slowly and methodically up to about 40 to 45% moisture content. Once we hit that time, steeping is done. That's typically anywhere from a 36 to a 45-hour process. So is that when it uh, starts to get killed? Actually, no. That's nope. just the start. We're just oh. getting, we're just getting, I'm we're way just encouraging the barley to uh, germinate at that point. It's just developed the first rootlets. And we could say, well, why don't you just leave it in the steep tank and allow it to germinate? Well, steep tanks are great for hydrating, but they're not good for controlling temperature. And barley, any seed as it grows, is going to put off a lot of heat during that germination and growth phase. So we put it in much larger vessels, layer it so that the airflow, the bed is, is much shallower. And the amount of air that's pulled through it is about 10 times more than what we do during the steeping process. So once that barley really starts to grow and germinate, we need to control that temperature, pull that heat off. In the germination phase, it'll stay there for a period of about three to five days. And after that, then it will go into the kiln drying phase or the roasting phase. I should say at the drying phase. It can either be dried in a kiln or on a roaster at that point. Okay, so it's either kilned or roasted. After yeah, that's what I call it drying phase. rather than yeah, kiln. Okay. It's actually drying phase because you can either roast it or you can kiln dry it. If you're taking it wet, from if you're taking the, the grain right from the germination at 45% moisture and you put it into a roaster, that's how you make crystal malt. That moisture is essential at that point to be able to get that sugar production prior to making crystal malt. Yeah, so let's get into uh, the different types of malts that there are. Uh, a lot of them, other than the black barley, are really just space barley, right? They're roasted to different levels and in different process to create the different types. They are. You know, I look at it a lot. I, I look at kiln. I, I usually break it out between kilned production, crystal production, and dry roasted processing. Kiln processing, I think of a lot of the flavors we're shooting for are more like baked goods. You get bready, toasty, malty characters, you know, a lot like baking buns or like break, baking bread. Those are the flavors we're looking at at a kiln. What do you do in, a, in, a, in an oven? You dry things at, you know, very slowly and kind of, you know, at lower temperatures. 
So if you look at a base malt, that's produced very gently, taking that moisture content down. You want to keep that color and that flavor impact minimal. You want to, you want to drive off off flavors, but you want to create a nice, light, malty character, something that will, will benefit from addition of other specialty malts as you go along. So is there a specific beer style that's good with a kilned malt? All, all beer styles all. are great. Yeah, yeah. In general, and this is a generalization, about 70 to 80% of a grist bill to, to an average beer is going to be base or brewer's malt, gotcha. as we call it that. The remaining are, would be specialty malts in various combinations, kind of like adding spices. Now you get the, the, the base malt's going to be the stock to your soup, and, and the spices are going to be all the remaining specialty malts that you put in there that makes everything so unique. Explain to us a little bit about the Lovabond scale. One thing I've noticed, I've never known the answer, there's very specific degrees that grains are roasted to. Uh, why is it Why is it that very specific number rather than uh, kind of close to it? really kind of correlates with flavor. There's a, there's a lot of correlation between the color and the flavor development that comes out at these different color levels, if you want to call it that, <clears throat> where, you, where you differentiate between, say, a pale ale malt, which is about a three to a four Lovabond, has a little bready, you know, toasty notes along with it, um, a little biscuit character. You get up into a Munich, 10 Lovabond, 20 Lovabond, now you're really getting strong, malty, really bready, malty characteristics. So if you're gonna make a, a malt monster, if you need a big backbone for a, for a big IPA that's out there, you want that malt character to come. So the darker and darker produced on the kiln, think of those as more, more and more malty flavors as you go along. And uh, how high does it go up for uh, malts? On a kiln, you can typically get up to about 30 to 40 Lovabond would be the highest I've seen on a drying kiln. And really, it boils down to the amount of temperature heat you can throw at it. Typically, a drying kiln would dry a, a large batch of grain. You know, mm-hmm. You're talking whatever the full batch size is. In our case, at the, our new plants, it'll be 450,000 pounds of wet grain that we're going to have to dry down through that. So large batch size, high fan flow, relatively low temperature, maybe about maximum 240, 250 Fahrenheit applied temperature. So that limits the amount of darkness you can impart on that grain and flavors. Then what about the wet roast with the crystals? What's the range there? Well, the, the idea with crystal is that it, it's not only a range. What, what's interesting about the Lovabond range is that you can take three different malts at the same Lovabond range and have them be completely different flavors. Just like three beers that you would look at that have exactly the same color can be completely different in flavor. All depends on the processing. Kiln dried, if I made you a 20 Lovabond kiln dried malt, that would taste very malty, super malty character. Aromatic malt, if you think of it that way. If it's a crystal malt, what we're doing is taking that wet malt, we drop that into a roaster, and now what we're trying to do is put it through a conversion, do a, a mini conversion inside each and every one of those barley kernels or malt kernels that are in there. So all that starts, we're trying to break down into sugar. The whole key there is to make as much sugar as you possibly can, because now we're getting into crystal. The reason it's called crystal is it's crystallizing the sugar inside. So first things first, we have to take this wet mass, heat it up to 160 degrees, which is the enzyme temperature that makes that starch get broke down into sugar, make the sugar, then we really rev the temperature up, maybe 700 degrees Fahrenheit, 
and start to, to blow off the moisture content. It's like making caramel on the stovetop. It starts to thicken on the inside of that kernel. It gets darker and darker, and more and more flavor starts to develop. At the lighter colors, like a 10 or a 20 Lava Bond, what you would get is like a sweet candy-like character. 40 to 60, you start getting into a roasty character. 80 to 120, now you're getting into more fruity, the raisin prune type of flavors. 150 even start, 150 to 200, you start introducing a little bit of chocolate notes along with it. So the interesting part, that the key difference between that and kiln-dried malt, you taste it. 20L kiln, it's going to be all malt. A 20L crystal will be all candy like sugar. And a 20L dry, the other alternative is to dry roast it. And that's to take a kiln dried brewer's malt, drop it dry into the roaster at 4% moisture content, and turn the temperature up right away. Now it's like roasting nuts or roasting cocoa. Those, those are the flavors that we're trying to get. You, you move into a whole different class of flavor there by different processing. And that's your uh, roasted barley or your your black malt. Yeah, or you know, Victory Malt that Brees offers out there, a, a, a biscuit type of malt, that's gonna have a real nutty character. It's like roasted peanuts almost. Personal question, I've always heard two row and six row. What's the difference other than? Four, <laughs> there really is a difference. <laughs> two spikelets per row on the barley head versus six. Oh, okay. So that's why two-row tends to be plumper. It's got more room to, to fill out as a kernel. It doesn't have to jam six kernels per spikelet that's in there. That's the short answer. I never knew that. The geeky answer would be another whole three hours. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then uh, currently, how many varietals do you offer here at Proximity? We're, we're working with a number of different ones. We're going to have, our concept really is going to be to get two main workhorses out there that do, that are, are best agronomically. We want our growers to be successful. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're key to us. We want to make sure they do well. So we'll have two key varieties at each location. Uh, right now we're looking at uh, Genie, which is a variety from, originally from, uh, Lima grain that's going to be growing out in, in it was a European variety and that's going to be growing our that'll be a Colorado workhorse in Delaware we're looking at uh, Violetta and that's a German winter two-row both of, we've, we've grown them successfully last year so we were all, all of these or most of these have been made with those varieties and then those new samples that are behind you there in the works are that's our that's our bench our feeder program that's going in there now we're going to look and say can we do something better agronomically and or better or unique flavors. I think so you, that's where this will come into play. I think you brought us to a perfect point because that's where we're going to get into next. We're going to taste the, the word and see where it goes from here, I guess. So what we have here are those varieties we were talking about. I've got V3 here is Violetta. That was grown in Delaware okay. last year. Genie, which was grown in Colorado. Those are the workhorses. So that's going to be Delaware, and that's going to be our Colorado. Then we have Westminster and Concerto. That's our feeder program, two of our feeder programs right now in, in Colorado. Okay. That we're looking at. We've got a couple other in, in Delaware, but we're always planting trial strips, small, what we call drill strips out there. We'll get a grower and say, can you commit an acre, two acres to grow? And they'll grow a row of each one side by side so they all have the same conditions in, in the field. And then we'll bring them in, harvest them, malt them, and, and do the flavor testing and see what, they, see what they're made out of. Now, what really pops out, obviously, so these is are, how hmm? the color's the same. So, yeah. malt, I mean, the malt would be the same color, or...? 
I did that. I did this purposely, and what I did when I when I did the malting process, I put them all through the same steeping and germinating process and the kiln drying process. But what I tried to do with all of them is I wanted to get the true flavor that was going to come through. So I did a pill a pilsen style malt, which is the, the lightest malt that can be made. So these are ranging anywhere from about 1.4 level bond up to about 1.7 level bond. I didn't want any masking flavors, multi characters, oh. other things coming in. I wanted to keep it light like a pills because that's where you're going to find off flavors. If something's not right in there, it's going to jump out and you're going to go, ah, okay. okay. Mm-hmm. So that's why they're so so light looking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's not a lot there. So you won't get a, a huge bang of malt on them, but I wanted to say if something's going to stand out, positive or negative, that's the way to, uh, to get it. So what I do with them is I'll taste my, my two workhorses here. I know in my mind mentally what those what those flavors are and are supposed to be and that they're good and good notes. And then I'll try the other ones as we go along and we'll say, how do these stack up or compare? How different are they? Well, that sounds like a perfect, uh, perfect route for us. Let's, uh, let's try the workhorses. What I, what I like about Violetta is that Violetta's got a great mouthfeel to it. It's got a really okay. nice malty character, and it's got wonderful, beautiful body. Genie is nice and malty, super clean. Super clean. Now, is that because of the uh, different protein levels, or what, why is that a little bit more? I think it's varietal. I honestly, okay. honestly think it's varietal in location. So for when you run it through the... Uh, the Ferraris and the Lamborghinis of test equipment. Mm-hmm. It really comes out with the same oh. number of protein tapes or typically the protein level will be pretty consistent with those. Yeah. Okay. Well, cheers. So yep. me, cheers. Cheers to the Lord, boys. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously this tastes nothing like beer. At this point, Very what sweet. do you want to taste in this that makes you say this is a good malt for beer? I want a, a light malty character out of this. I don't want any grassy green or grassy notes that would come through, no astringency, what I call huskiness or, or astringency character that would come along with it. Hmm. Those would be the, the two things though, that there, there are a whole number of other potential off flavors that you could have, but in this condition with it being a, a pill style, those would be the two characters that are really gonna focus on me. And it, it's, if something really pops up, you go, oh, okay, what is that? And, and you try to describe the, uh, the difference that would be there. Is it a positive or is it a not so positive? That's delicious. I, I wish just water tasted like this. Yeah, that's, that's great. <laughs> I, 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 I love work tasting. <laughs> it's even better when you're doing the crystal malts. Oh man, it tastes like it tastes like a malted milk. It tastes like a milkshake. Oh, <laughs> I could drink crystal six, sixty wort all day. <laughs> <laughs> now, who does the tasting? Is it always you, or is it? We've got a group here. Okay. Yeah. Well, what I found over the years in, in working with with taste panels, it's not best to get the experts in there. Bring bring everybody. Is there people that pick up things differently? I've, I've had accountants, I've had uh, CEOs, people. Some people have just great palates, and to bring in that diversity in there is really good. So, if a, if a home brewer came in, would you have some warts on hand that they could uh, kind of try some things out and figure out where, if, where if, they're going with their, if, their if, recipe? If they come in, yeah, we could do that. Otherwise, we can do a chew flavor. We can just take the plain old kernels and do a chew and sort, sort of do a little mash in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's not quite as effective. I think you get a little better uh, better bang for your buck there. So, yeah. so this yeah. is Genie. This is the so Colorado be, yeah. So this one, I, I'm detecting a little less sweetness in this one than the yeah. first one. Yep. It's a little less body and a little less sweet. I said it's a, clean, it's a cleaner mm-hmm. type of malt. A little more of the grain flavor is coming right. through. A little bit more like you're actually chewing on a grain. It's almost like a drying in your mouth. It's kind of the, the character I pick up when I get when I have one that's really got a husk 
an unpleasant husk character. It really just kind of puckers you up. Gotcha. Yeah. You lose that sweetness, and it's like, well, finish is really, uh, really, really grainy, overly grainy. This is Westminster. This is Westminster. This is one of the other UK varieties that we're looking at. It's a spring variety. All of our Colorado okay. barley's will be spring varieties. Okay. And I won't give you my evaluation on these three. I'll let you guys tell me. Which your I'll, I'll let you guys tell me which one is your favorite. I kind of like this one because it's a mix of the first two. Yeah, it seems clean. <laughs> yeah. Still not as full bodied as It has a little bit of the sweetness of the first one, but not as sweet, and it tastes, um, it just feels like a mix of the two. Yeah, a little sweeter yeah. than the Genie, but less sweet than the Yeah, Which I can concerto. I did two different iterations of concerto right here. Also, on that Westminster, I'm just getting a little bit different, I don't know, maybe my untrained palate, a little bit different on the finish. There, there is something like that. I, I call it, I call it a little bit of a mineral character. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Though. I like that. No, I like, it's, no, I like it's, that. It's, per, my personal preference was, I, yeah, I like that one. Yeah. Well, it makes so, sense. I mean, people talk about wines having a mineral quality. I mean, it makes sense that uh, grains as well have that mineral quality. It depends yeah. where they're grown. So that is Concerto One, and we have Concerto Two. So these are that one. I went a little bit darker on. So yeah, these are your more, so these are unique names, okay. but why is it why is that strange? I mean, what is what is going on there with the concerto Con one, concerto yeah. two? I didn't like the modification level on this one. Okay. So I did a second iteration of it that was a little more modified, a little more yeah. uniform okay. to what the other. Try to get a little more sweetness. <laughs> so, so two should be. I thought, it, I thought it'd be an interesting trial for you guys okay. to see. Yeah. Can you pick up a, a flavor differential based upon the level of modification between one Actually, and two? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that it's um, Concerto One's lacking a bit. Something. Mm -hmm. It's I'm not bland. Yeah. Okay. That's an official term. Fair enough. Yep. It is. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to get real fancy. It's uh, okay. it's bland. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't a, satisfied with it when I tried it, so I said, okay, I got to do a second trial. Now taste that, and you'll get a much more. Yeah. There's a big difference between big, big, Concerto big, One and Concerto yeah. Two. Quite a big difference. Yeah. Uh, in the first one, the, the symphony is playing at a musical level, yeah. and uh, the second one, the, the symphony yeah. is in full blast. Right. Right. Last last yeah, that one. Last sweetness that, now out. you can see the difference in yeah. modification profile on how that will affect the finish. Yeah. And that went through exactly the same kill recipe, oh. but I had more precursors, so it ended up being just a little bit darker. That was Concerto One was the lightest one I made, but that was simply because we didn't get it as modified as I wanted to. So how much effort was there to get to Concerto One? couple days to get to that point to say that man this isn't where I want it now I go back to the drawing board yeah it was seven days through the molding process to, uh, to figure and it I out. guess you wouldn't know unless you got to this point what is the end product I guess right yeah so. and I'm watching it as I as I go along again you know with a new variety you're never quite sure how it's right. going to be yeah. so I'm I'm kind of feeling my way through the dark a little bit going okay I don't want to push it too hard yet you know it's a little hard to find on the first uh, first go around I thought you guys would be. No, this is. Well, it'd be a good great. exercise yeah, for awesome. you to go. Okay, yeah, because you have to. This is your job, right? Is to figure out what level of modification you need to do to a grain, and, and what, what the, level you're going to. And what will that do to the flavor profile yeah. of of the different styles? Yeah, I mean, it's not just the kiln process that you're putting it through; it's the entire process that will affect the, the final flavor. Yeah, this is my first war tasting, so oh, cool. I appreciate yeah. you introducing us <laughs> awesome. to something new. Glad you could do it. We all. These are, these are going with us to the Craft Brewers Conference in D.C., so we wanted to, to do an internal taste testing, and I said, hey, we get the guys from podcast coming in tonight saving. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Thank perfect. you. Perfect timing. Excellent.
All right. Well, thank you again, Dave, for having us in, checking out Proximity Malts. It's got a great look to it. You guys have to come down and check out this place. A lot of repurposed wood on the walls, you know, a lot of grains to check out. It's a lot of barleys, a lot of amazing smells just walking into the place. Absolutely a fun time to come on down to Walker's Point and check out Proximity Malt, especially if you're looking for good ingredients for your next homebrew. So thank you again uh, for Alex. I'm Jim. Jesus. And for Dave, you want to say goodbye for us? So long, everybody. Looks like there was no beer this episode. This has been a solid non-fail production. Oh,